Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Quarantine Break Podcast. Thank you for joining me for episode 11. How are you doing? I hope you're keeping safe out there. It's a cracking show today. My guest is stand-up comedian, writer and presenter, Dane Baptiste. And everyone's like, yeah, they can see you, you know, and he went, did I say no? I meant, I meant yes. Sorry, I misunderstood the gentleman, I imagine, because of his African extraction. But what I meant to say was, yes, we can feed starving children. So I did that. <laughs> so yeah. It's a really interesting conversation, and Dane has a lot to say in this episode. We talk about comedy and life in lockdown, and Dane gives his thoughts on the recent conversations around British comedy, as well as Black Lives Matter, and how we can do better. Take a listen, and I'll be back at the end. Hello, Dane. How's it all going? Uh, It's going good, man. I'm uh, taking it a day at a time now. As to say, I'm quite bored of this situation now. So I'm a bit ready to like leave before I become completely institutionalized because (laughs) I can already feel myself getting used to the fact that I'm like, I don't like shopping when there's a lot of people now. Mm. How I'm going to return to the normalcy of being in central London with tourists who go, the best way to look for something is in the middle of the streets. Yeah, I don't know if I can return back to that state, but um, I'm sure in the same way that I had to adjust to life in lockdown, life outside again will be, uh, you know, take, just take some time, but I'll be okay. So today we're recording this in the middle of the week, which for me brings a whole new level of recording stress. At weekends, I'm just hoping that the neighbours' kids don't jump up and down on my ceiling for eight hours a day. Weekdays, it's all about builder's noise. I mean, I haven't seen my dad in three months, but hey, at least I'm sat in a rented London flat watching the neighbours finally get that extension to their already massive house. Yeah, because we always like to see that, the <laughs> people that uh, live in a privileged life right in front of us. I, um, I'll tell you something, Simon, that's bothered me, is that when I've done the odd drive to the shops and stuff, there's still roadworks. Yeah. But they've had so much time <laughs> to do them. Like, if you were a company, like, when the streets are deserted and there's no one out, that'd be the perfect time to complete any planned engineering works or any road works or fix any pipelines because the lack of traffic would be so, has been so reduced over the last three months. It'd be easy to get everything done. And I know you could be like, well, what about the social distancing? 
how close do you see construction workers working together? <laughs> Not very close in the first place. And if they, if government or whichever companies they work for had given them like the masks and gloves to perform their tasks, which they get anyway because they're working <laughs> in hazardous materials. So they've already got masks to stop them from inhaling um, harmful things. And they already have gloves to protect them and non-conductive boots. So they already have hazmat-based equipment and there's still roadworks that are uncompleted. And it doesn't make any sense Especially now, where we're in a recession, they want the economy to return to a state where it can be hit the ground running and we can encourage spending and proficiency. Your infrastructure is still incomplete, and I do not understand that. <laughs> it would have been the perfect time, wouldn't it? It would have been the perfect time. Look, all the, all the guys could have got on with their jobs and they could have been working and stuff, and then we could have been at home, and then no one would have to interact with anybody else. But nope. And then we could have at least swapped over. They could be at home right now. I would have happily, like, if been involved in roadworks for the extra money, to be fair. <laughs> Look, I think now there'd have been contractors if they'd been like, anyone want to do some work, like putting down some tarmacking or like, you know, putting up a roofing, a lot of people would have gone for that. <laughs> uh, especially in my line of work, you know, being at the performing arts industry doesn't really, it's kind of on ice right mm. now, it doesn't really exist. Then yeah, a bit of construction work would have been nice coming <laughs> my way. Dane, we start each episode with a big question, the one that everyone wants to know. On your own podcast, you ask questions like, what is a terrorist and what is masculinity? On mine, I simply ask Dane, how do you take your tea? Uh, green. Oh, really? Yeah, I just, you know, I just, I used to drink a lot of tea when I used to work in an office, and I really feel like it was responsible. For, I used to have like two sugars with it, and I was responsible for putting on weight, <laughs> and so I thought I was getting a bit chubby. Plus, then I learned that I was lactose intolerant, uh, <laughs> so that doesn't really help as well. So now I mainly drink green tea with honey. I have something called a uh, shotgun. Tea. Is it called shotgun tea or firecracker? That's it. I got firecracker green tea, which is like really strong stuff, and. Um, this comes in the dried leaf form. It doesn't even come in a tea bag. It's the real stuff. I have that with honey instead of sugar with my tea now. So that's how I have my tea. Or the other way I have my tea, Simon, is bubble uh, with, stro- with strawberry syrup. <laughs> <laughs> because I have the palate of a 12-year-old. So. <laughs> it's a good job you stopped having sugar then because we, we'd be talking yeah. to a very different Dane right now. Oh no! Yeah, this is this is post realizing the, uh, the the dangers of fructose Dane, the Dane that's had seven fillings. <laughs> well, now we have your tea order, and if you're listening to us for the first time, this is the podcast that takes a socially distanced tea break from the world. It's a world where footballer Marcus Rashford this week asked the UK Prime Minister if he wouldn't mind feeding starving children for the summer, and the Prime Minister initially said, "Nah." Yeah, and everyone was like, yeah, "They can see you, you know," and he went. <laughs> Did I say no? I meant, I meant yes. Sorry, I misunderstood the gentleman, I imagine, because of his African extraction. But what I meant to say was, yes, we can feed starving children. So I did that. So, yeah. It was quite an incredible story, wasn't it? It's an amazing story, man. It's, uh, for me, like, when I've ever looked up to an icon, especially even as a child, I've always uh, paid attention to both their prowess in their uh, chosen field as well as their activism, you know, outside of that field. And, uh, you know, you look at people like uh, Paul Robeson and what he did for like miners in Wales and stuff so many years ago. And then, um, you know, again, with, uh, you know, the, the charitable and the philanthropy that people like uh, Cristiano Ronaldo do as mm. well. Um, but yeah, I just thought it was crazy to A, think that it, there would be any kind of consideration to repeal um, school meals for um, poor children, especially with the fact that now we live in a country where food banks outnumber uh, fast food establishments in this country. Um, but yeah, I just find it very puzzling. And almost, there's also an ear of smugness for me, especially given the current social climate whereby, you know, we've had demonstrations from people who refer to themselves as all lives matter. Yeah. People refer to organizations as white lives matter. People that are in the English defense league. So they defend the rights and, you know, the culture of, of the English. 
And it's like, how have all these interest groups that you would think would care about the plight of white working class children, how come they all miss this? And this black dude from a hood in Manchester was able to help legislation pass to feed starving who statistically are going to be predominantly working class white kids. And he managed to do that. And all these guys forgot. And I was like, that's uh, mental, but it's such a good thing, man. It's it, a lot of the time, you know, people constantly tell uh, people of profile, whether it's in sports or entertainment, to stick to um, they stick to ball, stick to football, or stick to comedy, uh, and stay out of politics. But you know, by using his platform, you know, he's made uh, you know he's been able to politicize a very important issue, man. And uh, yeah, definitely have nothing but uh, respect and I'm in awe of Marcus Rashford. The man's incredible. I mean, someone posted on Twitter, I think it was yesterday, and I think there is an element of this, that because we are a terrible people, that the first time Rashford misses a goal or has a poor game, fans will be against him saying stuff like, oh, you should concentrate less on politics, more on football. And it's we, we try and tear these people down when they've done such incredible things like he has done. Yeah, it's because a lot of uh, f- uh, people that go to football are fat in it. So like they just used to having pies <laughs> and sandwiches. So they don't know what it's like to be hungry. I think they would... Hungry people complain less, Simon. <laughs> yeah. And that's the, that's the difference because their main complaint is I'm hungry. So it just, again, shows people's privilege if you're able to complain about stuff like that. But, you know, I just think when you juxtapose the two things, like if I was Marcus Rashford, a, part, a bunch of idiots being like, I'm not idiot, I'd, the, the intrinsic reward of knowing that you were able to make a difference and help people less fortunate, like you were you were yourself at one point. Um, yeah, it just, it just dwarfs anything people can say to you anyway. And, uh, you know, I just... I feel like, I feel like if me as an Arsenal supporter can be inspired by a Man United player, I think anything's possible and everything else doesn't make any difference. Exactly. I'm a Liverpool fan and I've been in awe of the man. I do want to get back to the point where we can start to make jokes about Marcus Rashford and say things like that's the only thing he'll win this season. Yeah, exactly. And it's going to get to that point as well. And I really feel like, you know, that's not, that's not too far off. And really, that's, that's a win that will last longer than a football season anyway. Yeah. So... I'm sure he'll be fine. Also, like, you know, the guy's a pretty tall, handsome guy. I'm sure he'll have a lot of work <laughs> outside of football. Prick. <laughs> like, I want to be back to like, look here. I used to look up to you. Now you're just a handsome Man United player. What's happened to you, Marcus? <laughs> So, Dane, we are in, I think, week 13, 14 of lockdown. How how has it all been for you? For the most part, it wasn't that bad. I think uh, the general consensus amongst a lot of other performing artists and creatives was that it was nice to kind of slow down and really just uh, detox, because especially a lot of the time you have to contextualise your uh, professional existence within social mm. media and stuff. And social media is basically like the equivalent of, I mean... It's the equivalent of walking down a busy market in a developing nation whereby everyone's like, come to my store, come to my store. Yeah, you look like a nice man. You come here. You like breasts, you come here. And uh, so it's just trying to make yourself stand out in that kind of uh, pandemonium. So it was nice to kind of take a break and detox and really take stock of self. So it was cool initially. And uh, even, like I said, it was seeing London's aesthetic without it being filled with people uh, uh, in their rampant pursuit of capitalist gain. Um, yeah, it was, it was good at first. And then it got mm. boring a bit and then uh dominic cummins uh ruined it for everyone so <laughs> with this drive-by eyesight test but after that i was like well if he's doing it now it doesn't really <laughs> add up so for the most part it's been quite good man i think i've i've not dealt with any more adversity than most people and um, the most difficult part of lockdown for me has been and i know for most people has been like you know having some family members or distant family members or family member friends or family members or family members' friends, you know, what the actual uh, COVID-19 virus, how it has affected people has been probably the hardest part. Um, you know, thankfully, 
you know, there's not really too many casualties on my side of the family, although, you know, some people have been sick. But, um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very grateful that it's not affected me directly and so much indirectly as a lot of other people. So once you think about it in that, it gives you perspective. And so it's been, it's been tough, man, but I know that people go through a lot worse. Like, so like my, we don't even talk about Syria anymore. Remember that? What <laughs> <laughs> the fuck is that shit? What happened there? So, you know, when I think about stuff like that, it's like, however, however adverse it's been, it's not made me ignorant to, you know, the plights that most people deal with on a uh, endemic basis. You mentioned social media. Have you found this a time that you have been able to switch off from social media? Because I think it's really sort of pulled me in more more so than it ever did. Yeah. No, this, yeah, it was the same with me as well. I think because of the fact that people are able to perform live, then the idea initially was that social and digital media would supplement the need to appear and perform. And uh, even then, I think I approached uh, social media because it sucked me in, but try to approach it in the same way that I approach comedy in that when uh, certain issues and topics come up you like rather than going for it like you know piranhas after bloody mm. chunks I kind of like took my time and looked at the lay of the land and like I do with comedy uh, on a live basis that I don't really want to say things just for the sake of saying them I want to have something to say and that's kind of how I treated that uh, I yeah, definitely had a large emphasis on online content but I made sure that I created that and made sure that it appeared in a way that wouldn't damage the brand and like I said it's not just a question of jumping up and flashing my boobs like everybody else does on Instagram. <laughs> Have you found this a productive time? You talked a little bit about sort of taking, maybe taking a step back, but have you found it productive in sort of your, your work? I know, I, I definitely find it productive. It's going to be time to focus on things that I maybe previously was kind of skimming over. Um, it's been productive in terms of just allowing me to learn the discipline of a performing straight down the lens of a camera to an online audience, which uh, the idea was quite off-putting, but, you know, it was a new skill I had to get used to. And but then it potentially can be a lot more beneficial because you know YouTube as a, as digital media stream and what it's able to create in terms of revenue and profile for people. Um, before like I think there was a real uh, snobbery about it being like they're not real mm. performers if they're using the internet. But you know it's just a different skill and it's uh, taught me to adapt and be able to contextualize my creativity in a different way. Uh, and yeah, I've been exercising a bit more, drinking a bit more water. Uh, reading a little bit more i say a little bit because like some stuff i read on the internet and i think if you read stuff with your thumbs it shouldn't really count <laughs> uh so i'm just skimming but it's been no but it has been productive in terms of like getting in shape and taking care of my health which on the road is something that's very difficult to do yeah, like, yeah. Work. so yeah i mean i can't remember the last time i've had like uh chips in a styrofoam <laughs> box so that's a good thing how have you found doing that those kind of digital comedy gigs because of course i saw you at the covid arms which was hosted by kerry pritchard mclean who was of course a yeah. guest on this podcast a couple of weeks ago and you were brilliant how did mm -hmm. you find doing that it's it's such is it a surreal experience when you're so used to getting that audience reaction i think the first time is kind of surreal um but yeah when i was able to perform the covid arms like i went i already eased in so that day i'd actually done an mm. earlier gig as well so i'd already kind of eased in but um yeah, it's, it's a weird one because you don't get to hear everybody's laughs and stuff. But thankfully, you know, Kiri and Jake and uh, Jess and all the guys that organise it are so supportive. So you feel a bit more comfortable because they're almost like laughing at you as you're going through the material. Um, but I kind of treat it in the discipline whereby, like, where I've done shows like Live at the Apollo, where even though there is a live audience, but you're kind of essentially performing for the camera to the audiences at home. Um, so it's kind of applying that same logic. Or if you've done previous acting work whereby you might nail a punchline and be like, ha and everyone goes, well done. Now, take two, we do a close, and then we do another take, or we do a wide shot, then we do a cheat over the shoulder. So so like you just learn through repetition that it's uh, you can't always, in certain incarnations when you're performing, you can't always get the immediate response from the audience. So you just have to kind of try and provide with that kind of gusto as if you're performing in a mirror, um, which was fun because they were a good audience though, at least, so that's fine. Is there anything that you've missed during lockdown? Anything that you've thought, oh... 
I really, really miss that. Uh, I've missed being able to play football and also uh, I've missed go eating out. That's what I've missed the most. Yeah. Uh, I've been doing a lot more cooking, which has been cool and uh, it's been fun. But I also like to not have to do anything after I finish eating. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And um, but it's um yeah I think that's what I miss the most is that meeting friends having food, uh because I'm at an age now where yeah food is much more important to me than sex is now so <laughs> in lockdown when people are like oh we want some nudes I'm like nope just some food please so, <laughs> you've got to get that so, on a t-shirt yeah, absolutely yeah I mean my friends talk more about meals now than sexual complex it's like oh man had my fingers in the dirtiest burger that kind of thing now so. I think I've, I've missed hot cuisine the most. <laughs> I genuinely feel selfish for saying this, but I genuinely think the thing that I miss at the moment is getting a haircut. I did think at the start about shaving it all off, but I think with my pale complexion, I'm sort of one top man T-shirt away from looking like the kind of idiot that protects statues. It's tough. I mean, you know, if, if there's one thing I can, uh, if there's one instance of uh, black privilege I can identify, I probably the only one would be being able to shave <laughs> my head low and not be judged in the same way. Whereas if you're a white guy, like it's very narrow options available for yeah. certain age. People will either think you're old or they think you're very <laughs> ill or very racist. But it's like those three things are not really going to get you people coming around to talk to you at a bar. <laughs> so... <laughs> And even if, I mean, one of them, they might talk to you, but it'll be very patronising in the tone. So, or, or a bit scared. Yeah. Or, or somewhat fetishistic. <laughs> so who knows? Uh, so it's tough. But I mean, I get it. The, the ritual of having a haircut and stuff, there's a certain level of tranquility and, and uh, you know, but if, it, if it's any consolation to you, Simon, there's women out there who probably missed the wax for a few months now. <laughs> Men too. There's some dudes walking around with hairy, hairy butt cracks thinking oh man i used to be the man a few months ago <laughs> i mean this sort of leads me on to my next question but and i've not asked this on the podcast not about waxing but do you think this time in lockdown has changed you as a person at all uh definitely not <laughs> I, I, yeah, I just i just become institutionalized when you when you get locked down in a joint it just really just it shows you who you really mm. are and uh, so yeah other than losing a bit of weight i don't think i've changed much just that like enough enough weight around about my midriff whereby i was like I think I've actually found new skin here. <laughs> um, so it just means, yeah, I've just stepped up my moisturization process by about 3% to cover those extra bits of skin that are now appeared. But uh, yeah, I don't think I've changed much. Mm. I just try to, I get, if anything, I just try to improve myself physically and mentally from being back out and uh, being able to apply that to my uh, work uh, with a lot more gusto because it's been so long since I have worked, I want to be able to be able to hit the ground running. Yeah. So anyway, I've changed it. It's just been about, yeah, just... Uh, learning the skill of performing when you can't get an immediate audience so that can always improve your performance ability and yeah just trying to increase my endurance and stamina because uh hoping to get back traveling around the world again because i definitely will never take that for granted well, yeah before lockdown started you obviously had the chocolate chip tour ready to go and that will now be taking place next year obviously comedy theaters are closed at the moment and will likely be the last to reopen what was it like to write a tour and then have to step back and put that on hold Normally, I would some I would threat somewhat, but because the theme of my uh, show was about rising racial tensions in Western Europe and America, and about black rage and how we have to address that before it explodes, it's become really <laughs> <laughs> so. So I feel like once I get back on tour, people will just see the uh, relevance and the significance of the material in the first place. Because you know, I mean, it's been a part of my editorial, my narrative for a long time is that you know trying to introduce predominantly white Britons to a rudimentary understanding of the uh, uh, black British experience. And I think a lot of critics have kind of tried to downplay that in this mm. country for a long time. Um, so that's why I try to write like an uncensored, unabashed show about like black anger 
and you know how much that is even further stoked by uh, the denial of racism. And also, I guess the show was also discussing that uh, juxtaposed with more discussions that we're having about body image and mental health. And uh, yeah, I just felt like, you know, this show has now become somewhat prophetic. Yeah. Given the kind of state that we're in in the West. So I'm kind of looking forward to it because, I mean, I'm probably not going to open with, I told you so, I told you so, I told you so. But I'll be thinking. <laughs> I mean, your 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 trailer for the tour, which you posted on Twitter on on May eleventh. Obviously, this was weeks before George Floyd, and then this sudden reappraisal yeah. of the UK comedy landscape from well forever, really. And it featured various yeah. racist scenes from TV. As someone who has been talking about this subject for years now, how have you found that conversation in recent weeks around TV in particular? Uh, more recently, I find it somewhat vindicating because now uh, people are. I guess I'm, I, I've been sought uh, for discussion a few times by a few mainstream media outlets, which is a good thing on the one hand, you know, I can't, be, uh, can't take the publicity for granted, but at the same time, I feel like had people listened to me before, then you wouldn't need to be in a position whereby the discussions you have with black creatives are so binary, where it's like, oh, we've got to talk about racism and racial tensions mm. now, so now we've got to find a black person to talk about, which obviously, you know, from a consultative perspective is a good idea to do, because obviously you want to speak to black people about experience, but at the same time, it's like, because you're so reluctant to show these aesthetics outside of this conversation, that's why now you have an entire lot of people being like, racist, I don't know what it means. And so people walk around being like, I haven't even the most basic idea of discussing, having racial discourse, because it's not been allowed to happen on my TV screens or within the media yeah, for so yeah. long. Because, yeah, the spectrum of debates that's normally available to black people is sports, racism, and racism in sports. So now, again, I'm discussing racism, but, uh, yeah, definitely using it to explain the fact that comedy historically has always been a very, very efficient way to start these conversations and be a catalyst to discuss any social issues. Because by you using humour, you kind of lower people's guard and it's an icebreaker and you can have the conversation. But because the industry has kind of been resistant to try and, you know, emulate what they see in America then, you know, we're at this place now whereby these ten- uh, things are so tense. So it's been vindicating because I'm like, as I said, it's like, well, I told you so. Yeah. Um, and, but, but now, yeah, it's it's allowed me to kind of use these uh, new platforms to yeah make people aware of the fact that like this is not me being accusatory and this is not a uh, witch hunt to uh, criminalise or try to like vilify, you know, British white people. It's really to demonstrate the fact that how can you be expected to have an awareness of uh, the diaspora in the UK because they're not shown anywhere. But Despite what you may have heard, we are here. We do have a story and we do have these experiences. And if you really want to improve or approach a more uh, harmonious state, then you have to listen and indulge these things. So it's been useful in that respect. When I was speaking to Kiri on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, she said that, that she felt a pressure that when her tour does come back, that people will be expecting her hot and funny take on the past few months. Do you feel that same pressure, not only with lockdown and coronavirus, but on the Black Lives Matter movement to be that kind of spokesperson in comedy for this? Um, I don't think, and as I say, it's because it's always been a part of my narrative mm. and editorial in the first place. And it wasn't just like, you know, I made a concerted effort to just discuss race all the time, my material. But as I said, you know, anyone that would be looking at the landscape and the zeitgeist of British, of, uh, British life would know that people have at best a very rudimentary understanding and normally the aesthetics they see are normally within very confined spaces such as like you know the sports industry or the entertainment industry with a particularly uh, amer- amerocentric focus 
um, or a very juvenile focus. Mm. So what you've normally seen historically is that there's been this conflation of black culture with youth culture. So it's this idea that we don't really grow out of that kind of adolescence whereby we have these preoccupations with like trainers and music and like girls. But, you know, there's a lot of politically and economically mobile black people, uh, members of the Asian community as well, who have a valid journey to this class as well. But they're not the kind of people that would consume, uh, you know, black creativity in this country. And if, because it's like, I'm in my 30s. I don't really, ha- I'm not going to spend hang out with 19-year-olds or respond to that. Like, So I think it's, a, it's not really been a pressure for me because it's always been a part of who I am anyway. Yeah. And, I, I, and I also feel like, like I said, with any kind of uh, social phenomena, unless you have something valid to say that you know is your actual perspective, then you don't really have to value, offer an opinion anyway. I think at the very least, what you should do with any artist is to have that honesty and transparency that if you don't know what you're talking about, don't really talk about it. Like, you know, I wouldn't say that I'm massively au okay with uh, sexual identity issues. Mm. I may give a perspective, but what I do, I think, is that if I do give a perspective and it does prove to be, like, incorrect or inaccurate, I always, I never have the ego whereby I'm not open to hearing from that community and learning and refining my observations accordingly. But I think as uh, any observational comedian, uh, it would be weird for you not to be able to opine on what's happened because your job is to, you know, accurately uh, cover topics, yeah. uh, that contem- well, accurately cover contemporary topics. So I think it's been a, it's been a historic issue in, in the UK, especially whereby we've always had this kind of uh, leading towards the whimsical and the surreal. And while it might be entertaining to us to a certain extent, it's like this is why we have uh, consistently fallen behind Americans in like Forbes lists and the like in terms of our global appeal despite the fact that there's so much in common between, you know, British and American life, but ours doesn't seem to, and the fact that in, uh, in terms of imperialism, our influence has been able to spread all over the world, but comedically not so much because we don't really address issues like race. So people are like, well, where are these people living? We're now at a point where lockdown is starting to ease in Britain in much the same way my dad used to ease his car into a car park. In both scenarios, it's a little too fast and there's a high likelihood of fatalities. <laughs> um, how how are you feeling about the easing of lockdown? Uh, I, f- I feel uh, good about it. I guess it's, um, I just think just from a biological perspective, keeping people caged up for so long um, never bodes well. And uh, yeah. It, I hope, and I would like to think that people will uh, ponder the fact that we have a we treat uh, incarceration as a commodity, mm. and a lot of us couldn't bear to be in our homes for three months. So imagine there are people again in America. One percent of the entire population is in, is incarcerated, yeah. and people are in prison for stuff like stealing VHS or nonviolent crimes. And you know, some people literally because of the lack of funding to post their bail, they take, they take a plea and they have to spend time in prison for not committing any crime. So you know, if anyone who's had the experience of isolation and found it to be quite negative, uh, I would hope would have that outlook and be a lot more opposed to the penal industrial complex. Uh, I've been a bit anxious, as I said, as just getting used to like crowds and stuff again. I think I had a little brush with agoraphobia towards during my tour. Um, just because, I, I mean, and as hard as it is to believe, I could be quite a shy person sometimes, especially when you've reached the you know, adrenaline fuel tights of everyone listening to you. Then once that's over the show, you're kind of like, oh, yeah, it's me. And so there can be this level, this, uh, this kind of sense of yeah, claustrophobia when you're approached by people and stuff and being in the public eye and, you know, the whole vicious cycle of comparison and observation on social media. So I kind of enjoyed that, having a break from that. But I just think, yeah, for the sake of variety, I am looking forward to 
seeing how the, the lay of the land now that lockdown is kind of easing. Um, my biggest concern, I'd say, is that a lot of the lockdown pro- proportions, such as like, you know, banning mass gatherings and yeah. how soon are those going to be repealed? Because the idea of a government making laws whereby people can't uh, assemble lawfully and protest already sets a very, very worrying precedent. But other than that, looking forward to being back out there, reconnecting with other human beings or a social species. And I think like, so as that's, that will be how we all ease back into normalcy. We'll just be to interact with other human beings and be open to listening again. Twitter, as it is so often, was interesting this week as there was this rush to mock people who queued for Primark on day one. And then there was this backlash to the people who mocked the people who queued for Primark. Are you rushing to the shops? No, I'm trying not to. I mean, consumption wise, I only feel like my level of consumption was kind of more than it needed to be. But uh, I mean, if people are running to Primark, then you need to question what kind of lifestyle that they have. In the same way that, like, when people talk about benefit scrounges, it's like, what kind of lifestyle do you think somebody needs to have for them to like scrounge benefits? Like, it's not a lifestyle mm. to envy. And, you know, before I, comedy was anyway lucrative, I remember I was on Job Seekers Allowance. No one is on, in, in, in a job centre being like, yeah, 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 I'm getting one over on newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> no one's doing that. And even Job Seekers, and being, looking for a job or being on a doll, it's a very, it's a very, uh, it's a system that can definitely trap you. Mm. And, you know, a lot of people don't realize that people that are involved in that system looking for a job is uh, work unto itself. And why I always encourage people to remember is, you know, in the same way that people bemoan criminality and try to support the police despite the brutality, if there was no crime, they wouldn't have a job. Yeah. Just like, if everybody in the job center got a job, you know who'd be out of work? The people that work in the job center. <laughs> so, you know, there you have to understand that there are people that have some commercial interest in maintaining these things. So, yeah, I, I just think... But I also, also think that like you should always... Getting involved in online discourse is the same way as just if you're on a, a school bus with a coach load of kids, just trying to get them to all to have a structured conversation. It's not going to happen. So... <laughs> I just, I, take, I just don't really take it too seriously. But I, I just I just think myself personally, yeah, I think it's definitely something we should learn uh, because one, I think one of the big uh, benefits of the lockdown globally was that it allowed for some wildlife and for um, the environment to flourish yeah, somewhat. Yeah. Like, you know, like the canals in Venice were becoming clearer, saw a rise in the population of bees. And so I've been aware that like the amount of water and uh, vegetation that is kind of damaged uh, for the textile industry is significant, like, you know, apparently six gallons, like, like six, I think that's not six gallons, but maybe more than that, just to make, just to make uh, a pair of jeans. Yeah, no, I think I read that as well. Like, loads of, like, gallons and gallons of water in order to make jeans and, like, use of cotton, it's, like, it's causing soil erosion and stuff, so I was like, if I can help to not contribute to that, then I should probably leave it, so for that reason, and I hopefully I can continue, I'm just like, yeah. And I've got a shitload of t-shirts, man, and people give me stuff. Like, there's no need to be, I don't need to be buying any more stuff. The other thing that everyone also now wants to do as lockdown is easing is to meet in parks. I don't think I've met a friend in a park since the age of 11. And even then, I think they just wanted to search for porn in bushes. Exactly. And, uh, you know, that's a largely... Like, not a lot of savoury stuff happens in parks, right? <laughs> you know, not in public parks. In the same way that people used to be like, you can't have gender-neutral toilets. Anybody can walk in there. Like, no one wants to spend a lot of time in a public toilet. You know, it's not the best environment. So, uh, yeah, the, the park thing is very strange. But then again, I think, you know, there was a time when being close to nature and spending time with the family prior to, like, you know, change the, the explosion of media, that was probably a nice little pastime before it was ruined by television and pedophiles. <laughs> <laughs> 
pedophiles ruin parks for everybody <laughs> and pedophiles and negligent dog owners oh yeah like i see a lot of dog owners and they don't clear up after their dogs at the moment this might this might be the most conservative thing i've ever said simon <laughs> this week but <laughs> i think if you can use dna targeting or you can track people with like tags you know dogs get tags and they can track them electronically you can track a car electronically yeah i think they should get all legal dogs on a database with their DNA. <laughs> and if you leave your dog shit somewhere, we check that shit. And if that's your dog shit, you get a fine. <laughs> dog owners dog owners have got shitloads of disposable income because the pet food industry is more lucrative than feeding children in this country, as we know. Therefore, I think, because a lot of people are leaving their shit everywhere, I'm saying, if I get a ticket for leaving my car somewhere <laughs> it's not supposed to be, you should get a ticket for leaving your dog shit where it shouldn't, it shouldn't be. And we should be able to test that and you should get a fine, a massive fine. <laughs> it's a revenue stream for the government, makes for a nicer, cleaner environment. And if you really, and like, you know, don't, and then don't money from those fines could probably make us like, you know, finance some compost bins. Mm. Then we can start putting that dog shit in those compost bins in biodegradable diet. Then we start building up all this compost and then you've got a natural source of compost for more vegetation to grow. I mean, that's the best idea we've had on the podcast so far, I think. I mean, I, I've had a lot of time to think about this stuff, Simon. <laughs> <laughs> I'm at work. I'm broke. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about uh, TV as we've been watching so much of it in lockdown. But first, we do have to talk about the fact that your brilliant scripted sitcom from 2016, Sunny D, has returned to BBC iPlayer after an online campaign. That's that's amazing. I loved it when it was first on. I loved all the funny cutaways and the asides. It had such a great cast, including the legendary Don Warrington. Absolutely. For anyone who hasn't seen it, can you tell us a little bit about it? Uh, yeah, so basically Sunny D is kind of a quasi-autobiographical story of my life before I started doing comedy. And uh, yeah, it's just uh, a, a funny comedy vehicle that I put together, which reflects all of my influences. Like, you know, I grew up watching uh, a lot of sitcoms from the States on Trouble, used to be on the UK, in the UK, uh, as well as, you know, I was a really massive fan of uh, adult animation in comedy. Yeah. Simpsons being obviously the longest-running uh, sitcom of all time. But like uh, some of my favourites, like South Park, The Boondocks, uh, you know, animated films like the Baby's Kids and uh, Crapston Villas, which is stop motion animation we had here, Spitting Image. Like, I always felt like, you know, using animation and a certain element of surrealism allowed uh, you to embellish stories for comedic effect in ways you couldn't actually do with live action. Mm. But then, you know, as kind of time went on and this opportunity came up, I wanted to reflect all of that in a show where, as I said, because, uh, you know, I was aware that Sunny D is the first sitcom with a black majority cast on British TV in 20 years. Wow. Again, I was aware that you know you were in, essentially have an entire generation of people who have not really had exposure to this kind of aesthetic. Yeah. So, I wanted to create something which was uh, obviously very mindful of my culture, but uh, wasn't the sole voice for it. But you know, it was relatable, and like I said, uh, create something which was not a black sitcom, but it's just a sitcom which incidentally has black people in it, and uh, you know, it's a great experience. And uh, in, I was the first time writer on the show. And I wanted to get, you know, some undiscovered talents and diamonds in the rough to appear on the show as well. So, you know, cue David Ajayo and Bemi Icamelo, who both were in the Royal Shakespeare uh, Company. And, you know, you fast forward four years and uh, David is now a regular a regular actor on the BBC and uh, an award nominate, an award nominee. Yeah. And uh, Bemi also last month was nominated for a BAFTA. So for me, the fact that their television, their television experience began with Sunny D is so humbling. Even... Uh, Akemji Defornian, who played my cousin on the show as well, he's actually gone on uh, now to 
write and star and produce his own uh, sketch show, which is Family Land. Yeah, yeah, so of course. All these things covered having their origins from Sunny D as well has been amazing. And as I said, to have Don Warrington to show the full circle of being one of the first ever black actors on a sitcom, to you know, to appear as a patriarch of mine was just so humbling and just uh, you know, testament to what can happen if stars align in your favour. But uh, yeah, it was a fun show. It was a short. Uh, it's a short experience, but um, yeah, I just think. Um, you know, like I said, it was a whole generation, you know, that kind of lost out on something that represented them. So I wanted Sunny D to reflect that with like the kind of 90s soundtrack, mm. 90s, early 90s soundtrack and a lot of sex and kind of the references, nostalgic references and stuff as well. But yeah, it was definitely me, as I said, you know, growing up with shows like The Cosby Show and The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And these are shows that were shown in the UK. And I just, I, I just felt like, you know, Britain and on a larger scale, Europe, we should have the same thing. And that's what I tried to create with the show myself. So it was a wonderful experience, but it was definitely bolstered by all of the people around me that helped, allowed it to happen. I don't want to spoil how the series ends. It does end with a lot of possibilities for future future series. Did you have an idea where you wanted it to go? Yeah, I definitely wanted it to continue, man. Like how I kind of saw uh, Sunny D was that, as I said, because we were aware of the fact that, you know, it's it's trying to provide a uh, nostal- nostalgia for, you know, 20 years of uh, lost time and and arts and contribution to British popular culture and moving forward I would have hoped the show would have done that and kind of I made the show as a massive sitcom fan and someone who is aware of the knowledge of other uh, sitcom fans as well so you know it was someone who was trying to make a sitcom as a fan of sitcoms and make a show that didn't underestimate the intelligence of its viewers and um, yeah just I just left it open because I just wanted, didn't want to be constrained by, you know, typical uh, paradigms of like how you, of those formats whereby they might be 25 to a half an hour long and appear at the same time and always having the same enter and exit stage left. So, yeah, I just wanted to create something very different. And uh, even though not a lot of people were aware of uh, Sunny D, you can kind of look at how that appeared, you know, as long ago as 2016. And then fast forward now where you have shows like Atlanta and Enterprise. Yeah. Now, now so many shows that no longer follow the kind of classic structure of a sitcom. But I think, yeah, we would definitely had to curve with it. So I left it open to hopefully to return to it. And, uh, you know, it's I, I definitely wanted to leave the open-ended, which means we can take it in so many different directions. And you know, the ideal thing would be with me to carry on with the story, maybe in a different guise or under a different name, but definitely using the same aesthetics, the same kind of styling. And uh, if I'm lucky enough to be able to use talent, the same talent or equivalent talent as well. And, uh, yeah, how I saw it was that by the end of it, it would have been like a very lovely way of kind of celebrating both black British culture and British culture and uh, yeah the phenomenon of the kind of like the sitcom as well yeah. and 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 really really make something that allowed everyone my peers uh, whether they're in a creative industry or not to see because you know it's the same as my journey that like I felt like I was arriving at what I refer to as a quarter life crisis <laughs> uh, and a very existential one which I felt was shared by a lot of people like myself who you know went to university at a time during like you know the Blairite years and now uh, graduated and was kind of like, well, I can't even afford a fucking house in London. What? <laughs> what? I won't even get a pension at the end of my working life. So there's a lot of angst and anger. And I think a disillusionment that a lot of our peers kind of shared. And I just wanted it to kind of capture it. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, hopefully I, I'll get the opportunity to do that again. But yeah, it's definitely wanted it to be part of 
uh, one voice uh, among many for a generation. I hadn't appreciated at the time that it was the first black British sitcom on TV in 20 years. When you look at, I guess, the black shows that have followed things like Chewing Gum, as you say, Famalam, which has its DNA really stitched into Sunny D, things like The Latest Show with Mo Gilligan, Big Nasty Show. Yeah. Do you look at that as a positive list or do you think that's that list is still not long enough? It's both. It's positive because it's, uh, it's, prog- it's progress compared to where we were maybe a few years ago. Um, but yeah, definitely for me, we def- more work definitely needs to be done. The list needs to be definitely a lot more extensive. And we also, I'd say, it, the diversity, as I said, the fact is uh, it's just a moving away from that conflation of black culture with youth culture. Mm. Because, you know, if you look at, like, you know, white British institutions like uh, Ab Fab or uh, Last of the Summer Wine, uh, Darling Buds of May, the uh, archetypes in, and the characters depicted in these shows are very obviously over 30 yeah. and live a life which is very relatable to a certain demographic. And even now, still, there are no black equivalents whereby you're seeing black people in their 30s and their 40s uh, living and thriving at an age whereby you consider stuff like you know schooling for your kids and your uh, your life after retirement and stuff and, and again I think once those exist it's going to make it's going to be so much more relatable to what's arguably the largest demographic in the UK which is like your over 35s towards your 60s and stuff so I think that's what we're needing most as well is that it's uh, having these black equivalents that exist to represent even the subgenres of uh, you know the black British caucus whether it's like you know LGBT shows or black trans shows or like, you know, I said black shows for like, you know, black geriatrics or yeah. for young black people, for black intellectuals, you know, black working class, black middle class and you know, black satire and just every single other facet you see within, which comes under the banner of British comedy is having that represented by black people in the incidental fashion whereby it's not on a separate reservation where we're like, well, this is the black thing we're doing as well, because then that's always going to still have that division, I think. Once we get to a point whereby you see a show and, and like the latest show is not referred to as like a black show, or even some of these are referred to as a black sitcom, then we'll be in a good place. In light of recent events around the world, do you feel positive that we'll see action to change that moving forwards? Uh, I'm quite pos- positive. I'm cautiously optimistic about it. I think the most positive thing is seeing that there is an entire uh, generation, younger generation, who are a lot more uh, politically astute and are more historically aware than we've been given and credit for. Um, especially because of how they're depicted in the media. But, um, you know, all of the uh, ways we've been bemoaning younger generations about all of their privilege and their lack of awareness, they have definitely stepped up to assert their humanity and their freedom. So I would find it very hard to believe there wouldn't be any kind of change. Um, and I just think, like I said, the, the transparency that's come with social media and with, you know, the democratisation of voices on uh, digital media means we're quite at a stage now where this can no longer be ignored. I don't really think we can go back to a state as we've been anymore. So, and I just think for our generation and for preceding ones, you know, following our wars, we've had like a relative peace in the West compared to how the rest of the world have lived, but it's always very naive and somewhat stupid to think that you can observe all of these injustices of the world. And at some point they won't be at your doorstep because wildfires spread. So, and that's even in LA, you know, LA, supposed to be Hollywood where dreams come true but you know once a fire starts it still reaches those homes as well so you know once a fire is burning and in this case you know being revolution at the very least you're still gonna have to inhale the smoke a lot of people will be listening today and thinking how they can be an ally to the Black Lives Matter movement to keep that momentum that has hopefully grown over these past few weeks going. And that's not just about putting a black square on your Instagram. It's about supporting meaningful change. As you say, it's about changing the makeup of rooms of decision makers beyond 
education and going out there and finding out about the issues, what what else should we be doing? Uh, I think what I would say people to do is that, I mean, initially the same approach you take is the same approach that we observe with the whole Me Too thing in that it's like, you know, you have to believe women. You have to believe these stories from black people about uh, police brutality and these injustices, you have to believe them. I think any person that's capable of thinking critically should know, like even speaking from the perspective of comedy and even socially, socially in the UK, people are relatively secular and no one follows the letter of the Bible because we are all aware that, you know, religion as an institution is very corrupt. In the same way that we are known globally as some of the best satirists in the world because English people are staunchly aware that their government is also corrupt. Now, these are the two institutions that feed into the police because the police enforce policies on behalf of both of these two institutions. So if you have these two corrupt institutions in government and in the church and they both serve the, and they both feed into the police, then obviously the police must be corrupt in the same way that if you have two adults who are both addicted to or abusing a substance, if they have a child, their child is probably going to be a crack baby. So, you know, the police essentially are the crack baby of the church and the state and, um, you know, enforcing policies. And I think, you know, for perspective, so if you're, for example, somebody who definitely has a lot of friends in the entertainment industry who may be of the LGBT community, just remember 40 years ago, if your friends were holding hands in the street, the police would beat them up and put them in prison and it'd be legal for them to do so. So, you know, I think people should spend all of their classic ideas about civility and legality and look at the morality of what's happening um, and I think, yeah, just in the same way that I think the approach is to do is to do the same way when you're dealing with misogyny and sexism is that rather than trying to reassure the affected groups that you are an ally, you should prove your allyship when they're not around. And in your own words, when you hear people flippantly using racist language or racially divisive language or engaged in any discriminatory practice, pull them up on it, even if there's no black people for you to see you there. And the same way that, yeah, you know, you feed the homeless, but you don't do it for the gram. You do it because it's what's supposed to be done. So, you know, it's not about me saying to women, oh, I recognize you're, an, you're a human being and you're an equal human being to me. It's more about the fact that if my male friends say something, you know, flippantly sexist, it's pulling them up on that and being like, whether or not you think you're joking, this feeds into a system in which women are massively oppressed. And so you have to not do that anymore. And I think that's what people could do as allies. And, you know, you see a lot of people, you know, having to challenge some of the more... Uh, Relatively having to challenge racism within our own families and stuff, but it's very admirable. And I say it's it's uh it does seem like it's difficult, but what I would submit to your predominantly white listeners is that like just think about it. You know, you look at somewhere like the UK or America, we sell the most makeup, we sell the most cosmetic surgery, you know, people in the States and people in the UK, or even like Brazil, which has one of the largest African populations outside of the continent, are people that use the most cosmetic surgery, require the most antidepressants, require the most psychiatric help. If the way of life they were living was working, they wouldn't need to do that. So if that's any consolation to you, is that like, obviously this is not working, you know, because at the same time, you know, if you're going to consider people subhuman and then you're going to rape and abuse them, then you're still raping and abusing animals. So it's like, I would say to other people is that like, as scary as it is, continuing a world like this will be much scarier because if people believe, or if there are powers that believe they can oppress a group of people, they never stop there, you know, Corruption, corruption never gets to a plateau where like I think we've taken a piss enough. So, you know, to quote the Manning Street preachers, if you tolerate this, your children will be next. And that's why Marcus Rashford has to do what he does.
Dane, lockdown has been all about television, at least for me. Mm -hmm. If it had been about ab crunches instead of crunchies, then I would have been laughing in this period. (laughs) What have you been watching on TV? Uh, I have been watching, um, I guess I'll try to get the highlights. So The Last Dance uh, was a documentary on uh, the Chicago Bulls, the the highly decorated Chicago Bulls. That was really good. So I enjoyed watching that. Uh, I've been watching uh, New Girl. I've been binging New Girl with Zoe Deschanel. Amazing. Yeah, it's great. And now, and now that I've seen it, I understand why so many young middle-class white women on open mic would come on stage and talk about like doing crafts and playing ukuleles <laughs> because now, now I've met their queen. So, <laughs> so I get it now. So that, but it's good though. It's a really good sitcom, man. Uh, Elizabeth Merriweather definitely needs to take a bow because it's a really good sitcom. Very well written. Um, and then what else have I been watching? Um, I'm into like a lot of anime and stuff as well. Mm. So I've been watching and reading a lot more anime. Uh, I've started just finished watching Preacher on AM from AMC on, and then I also and now I'm starting to watch The Boys. Uh, so yeah, I'm getting into a lot of the more hardcore, a lot more of the adult uh, graphic novels that have been adapted for TV uh, because some of the uh, more children orient or like mainstream oriented stuff. Like I don't need to see Gotham. Like I don't care what <laughs> Alfred did. I don't fuck. Like, they were like coming soon. Alfred. Alfred. <laughs> It's like Penny, Penny for, I don't care about Alfred. <laughs> I don't care about Alfred. So, uh, yeah, so I've not been paying attention to I've been watching those. And then, um, and then, yeah, I think because because of my attention span sometimes, I like to, f- the digital world allows me to like flip between, I, I spend a lot of time in YouTube rabbit holes, basically. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I've been enjoying a lot of uh, Joe Rogan by doing that. And uh, so I enjoy watching the clips of his podcast. Oh, but I think the coolest thing I saw most recently was uh, Dave Chappelle's very short uh, 843. Yeah, that's incredible, isn't it? Yeah, that was really good. Um, So that was probably the last thing I watched that really uh, got to me. Yes, I admire And the mind is artistry because as a comedian, I personally believe that, uh, you know, the goal of all all observational comedians is uh, we make observations on a surface level initially. But if you're really going to appeal to an audience, is that it's, it's been able to observe the things that your mind's eye can see. And I really feel like Dave Chappelle has transcended to that point whereby he's approaching the status of philosopher rather than just comedian. Mm. And it's an amazing uh, thing to see and something to aspire to. A lot of people during this time have also been listening to podcasts, thankfully. And I love your podcast, Dane Baptiste Questions Everything, which has, of course, been going since 2018. I was listening to the Emil Heskey episode last night. Uh, Obviously, as a Liverpool fan, I appreciate that he was very, very underappreciated. Yes, absolutely. Can you tell us a little bit about your podcast for anyone who hasn't listened in yet? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, Dane Baptiste Questions Everything. Yeah, just continues the theme of my world outlook, whereby I feel like by asking questions... We are able, that's the beginning catalyst to changing our reality. So I just try to encourage that on a podcast whereby, you know, we are a lot of the time very socially obligated or it's encouraged for us. It's encouraged, especially within the UK, that we don't question a lot of things. And we are, we've grown up in systems of like feudalism and monarchism and like classism. So a lot of the time we create states where, for example, if you're a working class person, you go to a pub. You're not supposed to discuss religion or politics, mm. even though these two things govern the mechanics of your existence. So it would make sense if you're a member of the proletariat, for lack of a better term, to talk about like these things because these things govern how you're supposed to live. Yeah. You know, because 
the church will tell you if you're a working class person of an LGBT extraction that how you live is incorrect. So then now your life is affected by these policies, even though you cause no harm or loss to no any other human being. Political policy would again determine how you live. Like now you got to pay a bedroom tax. So I think maybe working class people should discuss their reality a lot more. So yeah, the whole theme of my podcast is basically just to provide a platform so that people can muse and ask and think about any passing stupid things. So the podcast is for any time people have fleeting thoughts or ideas, no matter how trivial, no matter how surreal. Like, you know, like when people say stuff like, how can they make seedless grapes? Or how can you never see any baby <laughs> pigeons? You know, that kind of thing. What is burger sauce really made from? Like anything, any question that people normally find is like shouted down at a dinner table or, you know, by a partner or people that don't explain it. Or even, you know, I think a lot of people in school probably had questions at elements of their reality and their existence. And the response would have been, you have to put your hand up before you speak. And I always think that's always an issue whereby we're being taught to concede to authority and not question it. And so, yeah, my uh, the idea of the sitcom, of, oh, sorry, of this podcast is to kind of encourage more questioning from everybody. And over the two years, you've asked so many questions and answered many of them. What questions have you been thinking about that you would like to cover soon? I mean, the main things at this stage now are when... Are we gonna? When are we gonna start getting a dividend from the banks we've bailed out? Now the banks have been bailed out with another stimulus package. Uh, so if they start reporting bonuses, how soon can we set up a framework so us as the people that bailed them out can start seeing a dividend? Then how is a uh, Brexit going to? Why did you need to do Brexit anyway? Because now we're uh, on the lockdown. Probably would have been fine. Um, so how is that going to proceed? And then my only question is that, like you know, we are in a recession can we start looking at like you know schemes like expenses from the mps uh to find out to scrutinize where our money goes and finally my most important questions now are uh what's happening with grenfell mm. and then uh, my main question i guess always is where is the love <laughs> dane where is the love? dane thank you so much for taking the time to chat i really enjoyed that no problem no problem uh, thank you very much um, this has left enough time for my uh, green tea to get to a drinkable temperature so it's been perfect winners all round where is the love what a point to end on a little bit of intel about how we record these episodes so for the large part it's a free flowing conversation but we did have a brief pause after the portion on Black Lives Matter because I was listening so intently to what Dane was saying I couldn't remember what we were doing next I also had a lot of technical issues prior to this episode, including rain literally pouring through my ceiling. So thank you, Dane, for being a very patient as well as brilliant guest. Do check out Dane's podcast, Dane Baptiste Questions Everything, and his brilliant sitcom, Sunny D, is now on BBC iPlayer. That is it for another episode. Last week's show with Jason Watkins had a huge reaction, especially the portion on bereavement. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, please, please, please do read the show notes first. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please make your homework this week to tell one friend about this podcast. And if you haven't already, please subscribe, rate and review. I'll be back very, very soon. But... In the meantime, and as much as you can, please stay indoors. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.